Family Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Needle, joined as always by Chris Bugay. Hey, Chris. Hey, what's going on, Rachel? Not much. What are we talking about this week? Well, here's what I got for you today. I brought something with me, actually, Rachel. I was looking at journal articles, and I came across one that uh, I guess is relatively new. It came back out in May 2020, and it's titled, The Effects of Telepractice to Support Family Members in Modeling a Speech Generating... The Effects of Telepractice... The effects of telepractice to support family members in modeling a speech-generating device in the home. And this was done by Sarah Douglas, Elizabeth Biggs, Hida Medan, and Atika Bhagawan. Um, like I said, it came out May 2021. And, uh, you know, just reading, like, the synopsis of it, it's... It's something that it just really resonated with me, and I'm I like I know it's going to resonate with Rachel because you and I, um, when the pandemic first struck and we were moving, everyone was moving online. There was this general negativity around like, well, it can't be done. I mean, it can't be done. What? We can't do it. And then, of course, we all everyone proved everybody wrong, and we did it right. But one of the things that we tried to shout from the rooftops here on the podcast in a bunch of presentations we did together and separately was the idea that coaching, if you coach parents, if the dynamics worked in such a way that you could coach parents um, through the experience and maybe not just the parents, but the family members, then maybe they would have a greater success anyway, like even more than direct therapy. And this is some evidence that suggests that's the case. So, um, so first, what are your thoughts? Because then I was going to dig in a little bit and kind of give you the little, uh, you know, the purpose, the method, the results, and the and the and the conclusions. I am so happy that there is research to affirm what I feel like I already knew, <laughs> um, but just from my clinical experience. And yes, I mean, I think that what's super fascinating is that a lot of my kids made more progress um, than ever during the pandemic, and I feel like I can attribute it back to coaching, like a coaching model of intervention. Um, and so anyway, let's dive into the details. I'm excited that we have this new piece of research that we can kind of dive into. Yeah. So this, they said they, they took a whole family intervention approach here. So it is sort of a, a single subject, but there's four, there's five people involved. There's the student and four family members. Um, so this was a four-year-old child with complex communication needs who was using some sort of speech-generating device. And that particular student had four family members that participated not only in the study, but also the intervention. And so what the intervention was is that the clinicians attempted to teach those four family members a memory aid to help them do partner augmented input or aided language stimulation model, right? Become better at modeling. So we know the strategy is, uh, well, we know the skill that we want people to learn is being better at modeling and aided language stimulation. What's the strategy behind that? Well, the one they used to kind of get into people's minds was called prepare, show, wait, and respond, which to me sounds very similar similar to um, comment, ask, respond. Car is another one. So whatever the strategy might be, there is a strategy to try and get th these, these clinicians attempted 
wanted to teach a strategy to the family members to get better at modeling. In this case, prepare, show, wait, and respond. And what they found, they all did this through telepractice, uh, through uh, training and coaching. And they found that, of course, the family members um, had a had a high rate of modeling, uh, and the child showed an increase in independent communication and rate of AAC use. Um, and so they found it to be valid, you know, that this was a, that this, this worked for them, uh, worked for this particular family, and they wrote it up in this article, and that was pretty exciting, you know. It says um, here that future research, of course, should examine more, but... Um, but like, what a good, what a good outcome here, right? I mean, and it's not surprising to me that if you spend time teaching people something and you spend time coaching them and they spend time practicing it, that they get better at it and the people that they're supporting get better at it. I love it. I have a question. I have a few questions, actually. <laughs> Some follow-up questions. I'm curious how long the intervention was for. I think, Rachel, that it took, uh, the entire thing took a span of about five months. They said that they did it from August 2019 through January 2020. Okay, interesting. So this was, they started doing this research prior to the pandemic. And they probably figured, like, when the pandemic hit, like, whoa, thank goodness we're doing research on this. <laughs> really, right? I mean, they already had um, sort of so, some sort of an inkling. Uh, and of course, you were doing this beforehand, meaning you were coaching families remotely, right? I mean, that was before the pandemic. And I just wonder, uh, now as uh, more people are vaccinated, of course, people are back in buildings and schools. And I wonder if it, how much of this will last, do you know? Like, will it continue to, will people go back? back to an, the old way of doing things or will coaching via telepractice um, persist because one we have evidence here i mean clearly this is one piece of evidence but then uh, the the research article i mean but then of course the other evidence is that we've just seen it work right we've seen it work for um, our students and our families so what are your what are your thoughts it's actually a really great question so a lot of the families that I work with are pushing for in-person and, and even with my coaching. And I'm like, it actually is way easier to do coaching remotely for me. Um, you know, so it's like, could I like, you know, do things in person? Sure. But one, it like the whole like stress of having to get somewhere, I feel like is alleviated, which is huge. I think, especially, you know, both sides for families who are already kind of going to lots of different therapies and have lots of things going on. And also as clinicians having to drive from site to site. And so I think that there's that layer, but I also, I really like to use a lot of videos in my sessions and my coaching sessions and we watch back videos. So I use video asynchronously. Sometimes I'll even use it. Like I'll watch, you know, something in real time and record it. And then we'll watch that video back. Um, you know, and so it's just, there's so many, it slows down the process for me. The video really slows down. We can pause, we can rewind, we can watch back and reflect. And so, you know, I just wonder how we can start incorporating more of those strategies. Um, now we don't necessarily have to, right? Before we had to, because we had nothing else. Now we don't have to, but we can and we should. Um, and one of the biggest things I hear from school-based SLPs is I just feel like there's no carryover at home. 
right? Like that's the biggest struggle is like, how do I impact families at home when families are at home and I'm at school, right? And this is, this is the way, this is how you impact families at home. This is how you get carryover. Um, and so really thinking outside the box and how can we use the minutes that we have for students on our caseload and contribute some of those minutes to helping a family and coaching them remotely. Um, Because again, the technology is there now. Everyone's comfortable with the technology. Um, It's just a matter of scheduling it and doing it. And I also think that you know, perhaps you have to get some buy-in, right? I'm even trying to get buy-in with some of my families who are like, I want to see you in person. I want you to do all these things in person. Um, it oftentimes comes from families who don't, who haven't really started the coaching process yet. And so they think that I'm going to be working like across the table from their, you know, child. And I'm like, that's not what this is. Like, that's not what I do. Um, not to say I never do it, but you know, for the most part, I'm like helping you help your child communicate. And so I just wonder how we can start thinking through that lens and really advocating for that. Even on a smaller scale, it doesn't have to be like weekly you're meeting with families, but maybe you take some of those minutes and monthly, you know, you're checking in and, you know, seeing what's happening at home and being able to do some coaching in that, you know, context. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting to me that people are continuing to ask, even though they've seen it work. But I guess, of course, that makes sense to me that if they're new and they have a vision of what speech therapy is and it's not at all what you do, then, yeah, because I've, I've run into that myself where there's parents that are like, what do you mean? You, you strap the child down and you'd give them speech therapy with a spoon, right? I mean, isn't that how you do it? It's like, no, no, it's not like that at all. See, I'm going to play on the floor and or whatever, you know, whatever. What people have in their mind isn't necessarily what's most effective, especially for someone who has some experience under their belt, you know? What's super interesting too is that on my intake form, it's like, um, it has a lot of information, but one of them is like, I am open to telepractice, yes or no. And so many families are like, no, hard no. (laughs) And I'm like, I get that if you're thinking through the lens of like my child is sitting across from the screen and Rachel's trying to work with them. Um, So it's just interesting that there's still kind of this um, idea about telepractice with complex communicators. Um, Because I think that a lot of practitioners, like despite knowing that a coaching model makes sense and all these things, like they still tried to have this like session, like this direct model delivery through telepractice, which I can't even imagine. Like I imagine doing that with some of the kids that I work with and like, of course it felt like it didn't work because it probably didn't, (laughs) you know? Now, you know, along those same lines, you know, um, I am involved with a lot of coaching of educators, right? And so it's not necessarily the families that I'm directly working with, but it's more educators. And we've seen something similar there where people are like, yeah, come just come into the building. Come, come see us. We, we thought we'd see, um, so far, we thought we'd see more people wanting to continue remote, you know, um, and now it's like, nah, we'll just come, come, come do the coaching in person, come see us in person. And I, I, I'm just shocked by it because maybe it's because people are like burnt out on this. Uh, when I say this, I mean, you and I are using Zoom right now to, you know, maybe they're burnt out on video conferencing and they just want in-person experiences. But um like you said, there's so many advantages to doing it this way, to recording, to watching it asynchronously, to data collection, to having the uh, um, the video that you can go back to months, months, months later and be like, well, let's watch how you used to be when you interacted. Now, look at all how your skills have grown. Um, so I would continue to be an advocate for it. You know, I mean, I think I, I feel like... Um, 
this telepractice and especially coaching families and, and educators needs to be something we do more frequently, not go back to the way it was because the way it was wasn't working all that great. And I think just kind of to add on to that, you know, it doesn't have to be this either or type of approach. I think a hybrid approach probably is best. So maybe you, you know, initially start off by going into the classroom and modeling some of these strategies, right? Like here's what it looks like to do aided language language input. Here's what descriptive teaching looks like. Whatever it is the skill that you're trying to teach, like I end up doing this incidentally because part of, you know, when I'm working with a student is kind of getting a, a good as- assessment and whether that's finding a you know, new system or, or finding their current system. And so part of the assessment process for me, I do virtually first to just kind of get some information um, so that when I'm there, I'm like really maximize my time. I feel like I already know the student based on all the information that I got. And then as I'm like working with a student, I'm teaching those strategies. I'm showing like right now I'm modeling this, um, you know, and I'm waiting to see what happens after I model before I jump in and I ask a question. Um, so those kinds of things I think you can do in person and then transition to remote. Um, So it doesn't have to be this like either or, like I'm only gonna be remote or I'm only gonna be in person. I think you can do both. And you know, what we hear all the time, Chris, from you know, school-based SLPs and all SLPs is like, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time and have a huge caseload. And so it's like, hey, you don't have to drive 45 minutes to get to that school. Like it's just not necessary. Um, now I realize that a lot of times there's administrative things going on that's like I want you to be at that school, so that's a different story, right? But if you have the ability to, you know, communicate with administrators about, you know, how you can maximize your efficiency and your time, um, I'm sure you know administrators would be really interested in hearing about your ideas to do that. Yeah, 100. percent Same thing with uh, saving teachers' time and coaching them. Like now, you 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 don't have to drive from one place to a next. Um, and I really love your the idea there that it's not absolute, that it has to be this way or that way, but that, that it's a hybrid approach. And that that is probably the best, right? In that um, you can be flexible to the people that you're serving and so you create some sort of personalized approach and uh, depending on what's happening in the circumstances of the session you might say all right how about the next session I come in and I want to show you some things and you observe me and well how about you um, you hold the camera and record me and then we'll analyze me doing it and see what I did there and see what I did there and then the next time um, we'll try it again but we'll go back to remote and you whatever you make it work for the people that you work for which it may is the the big takeaway i love it i love it chris who's our interview today so that is actually anya oshuri yay so we did a coaching call with anya is it a two-part i think it was probably two-part we probably did a lot of talking (laughs) in fact this will be a two-part episode as well we'll break it up and we'll have this is anya oshuri part one and then next week will be part two So I have to say, Chris, Anya just posted in um, AAC for the SLP. She basically said she did her first AAC assessment and, you know, gave all of those findings at an IEP meeting and shared those with the team and got this student that she was working with an AAC system. Um, And she just had a message of gratitude to all the people that helped her along the way, us included. And she tagged us. And um, it was just such an amazing thing to read. And it got a lot of traction, I think on that group. A lot of people liked it, commented. And I think it's just important, an important reminder that one, just because you don't necessarily have skills right now, doesn't mean you can't gain those skills, right? Like Anya came to us 
really like not sure of how to do an AAC assessment, what to do. She had lots of questions. We helped kind of guide her through that process. But you know, we have the ability to learn, right? Just like our kids do. We have the ability to learn new skills and seek out the information that we, we need. And I will give Anya credit for that because she did she ever seek, seek out the information she needed? I feel like she was on a mission to figure out who could help her gain these skills. And I think it's really admirable you know, how dedicated she is to the students that she works with and serves uh, because she realized what she didn't know. And she, you know, was, uh, you know, courageous enough to admit that first. And then second, like, you know, diligent enough to figure out how to gain the information that she was missing. Um, and so I'm really excited to share this interview because I feel like, you know, this coaching call was really powerful, I think for her. And also it just is a testament to, you know, I mean, and Anya has a lot of experience as an SLP. Um, I don't know if it, she said she's been an SLP for 10 years or, you know, but you know, it's never too late to learn these skills. And, you know, she did it in a reasonably short amount of time too. We oftentimes get questions from people like, Oh, like, I don't know how, how do I do an AAC or how do I, you know, become an AAC specialist? And it's like, just start learning, just start learning, listen to the podcast. Of course, we're going to promote that just because it's a free resource. And we talk about it every week, but you know, those there's information out there to learn how to do these things. And again, I think Anya is a perfect example of how, you know, she was like, okay, I need to know these things and I'm going to figure it out. Be like Anya. Yes. We, we love Anya. She's a Patreon member too, which is super exciting. So hopefully she'll be at our Talking With Tech Live. Which is coming up here on October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time and Talking With Tech Live. You sign up for Patreon and you'll get the link right there. Yep. It's patreon.com backslash talking with tech. Um, I'm really excited for that, Chris. The lives with our Patreon, I feel like are extra special because I feel like it's all our like top fans in one place and we can all like geek out on AAC things. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So without further ado, let's listen to our coaching call part one with Anya Ashuri. Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel, but not just Rachel Madel. I'm here today also with Anya Ashuri. How you doing, Anya? How you doing, Rachel? Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited for this this call, Chris. It's good. It's another coaching call. <laughs> it is. It is. These are some of our favorite experiences, Anya, because we get really good feedback um, from listening to the people that listen to the podcast. So we can often go back and reflect about how changes and things we'd want to make in the podcast. So, so let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. Fantastic. Well, I am new to AAC and AT. Um, a little bit of background is I work at a non-public school for children diagnosed with autism with behavioral challenges. Um, I've been at the school seven years and had this epiphany when I started my um, AT certificate that, oh my gosh, so many of these kids that I'm working with need AAC. <laughs> and I am, I also had, was subscribed to the myth that um, children that are nonverbal need AAC 
or students need some kind of prerequisites to begin with AAC. Um, so anyway, long story short, this last year has taught me a lot. And then, so I'm trying to create change at the school that I'm at. Um, currently I'm starting three AAC assessments, but I'm also um, starting an AT program here with, um, so we're beginning services for all students. And so I guess it would be amazing. There's sort of twofold like AAC and sort of AT for the greater, um, you know, for the greater population at the school. Awesome. Um, you say you're new, but you said you've been at the school for seven years. So yeah. tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um, most of the time I've been really working on the social cognition aspect of working with these students with behavioral challenge with autism. So a lot of like cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of um, Michelle Garcia winner stuff and, you know, zones of regulation and less emphasis on the assistive technology piece. In fact, to be honest, no one was really talking about um, assistive technology and accommodations. And not until I was in my course, um, my coursework, did I realize, oh my gosh, we should be having this conversation at every single IEP. <laughs> and it's not just, you know, schedules or, you know, preferential preferred seating. It's, there's so many other tools that could really help kids. Um, and I kind of have this, um, I mean, I would like to do more research on this, but I, I, I really feel like a lot of the behavioral challenges stem from not having access to academics that meet their needs. And this inaccessibility coupled with troubles with emotional regulation, there's behavioral challenges. <laughs> mm. And so I really think that if we're meeting their needs and we're giving them access to different ways of you know, reading and writing and using language, we're gonna meet their needs. and it's going to mitigate a lot of problems. That's my hypothesis. <laughs> so I think I don't it's know. a I could, swell I hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. And I also, I'll add to that. I yes. feel like also with like not, not strong communication skills, right? So a lot of, I work with a lot of students with autism yes. and just like all those things kind of when they converge, just create a lot of uh, resistance sometimes to, you know, activities, school, like you know, you name it. Um, and so I think if we can make things more accessible for kids, um, you know, introduce technology that can help support the learning process, make it more fun and engaging and easier, um, then we can see a lot of success with the students that we're working with. Absolutely. And so many, like I'm thinking, you know, we have a few different classrooms, but one classroom of high schoolers that have more significant language and communication challenges, they're still using worksheets. And like, how many, how many ways can you differentiate a worksheet <laughs> and make it accessible, right? Coupled with troubles with language. And we're all like, oh my gosh, they have behavioral needs. And it's like, everyone's focused on the fever, mm -hmm. but underneath the fever are a lot of unmet needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's up to us to figure out, you know, let's go upstream and create change so that we're not sitting in the fever and wondering how this, how we got here. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 100%. So Anya, you said that you um, have kind of grown, especially in the past year with changing your own mindset and perspectives. Can you talk about that a little bit? What's that experience been like? And what was the catalyst? Like what was the, what was the recognition that, uh, that we got is we can't stop or we need to stop treating the symptoms. We need to start treating the, the causes mm -hmm. of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I actually got that sort of minds the the let's talk stop thinking about the fever we're all focused on the problem and less about the solution from this um this uh 
uh, Dr. Ross Green, who works with behaviorally challenged kids, um, and he has sort of a different model, more of a collaborative model. And I know we all subscribe to like including students in part of the problem solving. Um, so he, with him, I got a lot of that sort of mindset change, but a huge catalyst was um, pandemic, <laughs> as it was for so many people. Um, but I, just to back up for one second, I was working with an AT specialist for a student with writing needs. And she was showing me Clicker, Clicker Connect, and and I was thinking, oh my, oh my gosh, like, so all our kids need something like this, right? They're all using worksheets, like, we, absolutely, this makes it so much more accessible. And there's word banks, and um, so it got me thinking. I was like, wait a minute, I, and I I look more into AT, and so that's why I got my certificate, and I started AT when the pandemic hit. So that's when my course started, and then I just found like YouTube videos, and I found, you know. Rachel and Sarah Gregory and Chris, I watched, you know, you guys is like um, AAC in the cloud and just, you know, closing the gap and ATIA. And I've just, I've done a lot of like personal growth because I also, I think a piece of that was guilt of not having realized that sooner. So like, this is my opportunity to like acknowledge it, but also shift and create the change that I want to see in special education. Well, first of all, when you know better, you do better. So yeah. like we all have the experience of being like, wow, I wish I would have known this, you know, five years ago or, you know, know. Like at the beginning of my career. And it's like, we can't possibly know it all. So you're doing everything you can to, you know, meet your students' needs now. And Anya, we've seen you at all of our, all of our speaking <laughs> events and we know your name. You're a Patreon <laughs> member, like you really have committed, um, which is all, all we can do as clinicians, right? It's like do the best we can to learn about about strategies and tools that could be helpful for the students that we work with and, you know, do our best to implement them, you know, you know, in a way that's really, you know, going to move the needle for kids. So um, mm -hmm. we're happier here. Um, yeah. Let's get down to business on like what we can actually help with. Like, what are the, the pain points for you currently? You've learned a lot about AAC assistive technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've done all of the, the coursework, it sounds like, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what's still kind of underlying where you're like, I don't really know. I need guidance. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. It's like now the, I'm in like the application process. Um, so I think it's twofold. It's like, you know, I'm, I, this, I might not be here forever. So we need like an AAC sort of program here. If anything were to happen or, you know, things change that there is systems in place for, um, for AAC and evaluations and that sort of thing. But also for AT, um, we just had assistive technology added to our certificate because I wrote the, the board and was like, how do we get this on here? So now we finally have it, which allowed us to do a, our own AAC evaluations. Um, so a piece of it is AAC. How do we create that system here? And then also just AT. And I know Chris actually heard um, one of your episodes with another, it was another coaching call of an educational experience designer. And I'm totally blanking on her name, but you guys talked about the tiered approach and maybe I've heard that before. Um, just a tiered a AT approach to, you know, and I know like sort of AAC is maybe on the third tier more, you know, individualized and um, specific to a student, but then there's also, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing like, what are the other tiers? Is that something that we can implement here? Um, obviously, Joy Zabala's, the set framework is really important. So like maybe when we have a kid that's, you know, opting out of writing and we sit down, we're like, all right, so let's go through like the student environment tools and ta or tasks and tools, like 
do we just end it at that? Or like, at what point are we doing more in-depth AT assessments as well? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of like, here's the other caveat is people, and I am doing an AT in-service, there is, it's used interchangeably here. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> the umbrella is AT. AAC is in the umbrella, but it's an outlier, right? Because that's the only one the speech pathologist can do. But so there's a, there's a learning curve too. <laughs> so there's a couple of things there to comment on. The first one yeah. is um, it's, you are coming into this, into assistive technology in, a, in an interesting time where, um, even with be pre-pandemic, uh, just a whole field of assistive technology, if it even is a field, um, has been sort of wrestling with this idea of do we do evaluations or do we do sort of resource consideration and we guide people through that process? Um, and there's uh, that. And so, in order to answer that question. Let me ask you, what does your current process look like? So let's say you're thinking uh, a student is struggling with X or we need a student, a student wants to learn Y. How do you consider what they might need? What does it look like? Well, we haven't done a whole lot in that area right now, to be honest, because we just got our certification to be able to, for me to be able to do that. Um, and we've had outside providers come in. And what that has looked like is they do, you know, they meet with the student. They don't really meet with our team. There's not a lot of carryover. There's not a lot of coaching in the tools that the student was using. Um, so now that we just are all now in person again, I feel like that could be a little bit easier vehicle for creating some change. My thoughts were we do have clinical meetings at our school. Each classroom gets two clinical meetings um, a month. And those clinical meetings, there's, you know, the BCBAs, the speech therapists, OT, classroom staff. And I thought that would be a really great opportunity because we talk about kids that are having challenges, an opportunity to like carve out whatever, 15, 20 minutes, half hour to do a quick set framework and be like, okay, so what are, you know, kind of go through that because it's sort of an informal, everybody's at the table already, except maybe the student would also need to be present. Um, so I don't know if that answered your that question. Sounds like, do you have someone in mind that you could try that with and start, start off with? Yes, actually. Mm -hmm. There's just a referral for that. <laughs> Go ahead, Rachel. I was going to say, how do you think that the team would respond to that? I think that they would be open. I think um, there's a piece where everyone's like, yes, what, what do you got? <laughs> we'll try it. Um, so that's really good. I, I have a good rapport with, with everyone at work. So it's like the collaboration piece is, is open, good communication, um, which is which is important. You can't just walk in there and tell people what to do. But I also like, I know you guys talk a lot about um, coaching versus consult. And so I have sort of changed my mindset in less consult, more like, well, what do you think we could do? It sounds like he's struggling. What are some, you know, sort of creating like that more of that critical thinking and reflective questions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that it would go, I think that it would go well. Um, we also kind of need an AT sort of um, like library where it's like, all right, let's, you know, building, building that up. So it's like, okay, let's, let's trial some things here that maybe aren't so low tech. If there were going to be a roadblock with this plan, 
that you could anticipate, which we can't always anticipate the roadblocks. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, But if there were going to be, what do you think that roadblock would be? It's a good question. Right now, my greatest roadblock is more just like administrative buy-in. I think that a lot of, and, and that is more, you know, on, on me to, you know, and I'm going to meet with the owner and the director is really, this isn't like a, an add-on. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't, you know, like, well, this is a, such a nice feature we have at this school. Now it's like, well, it's actually like mandated by law, like to, for all of us to be doing this. And it might be educational malpractice if we're just completely ignoring it. Right. So I think a little bit of like, there's some urgency here, guys. <laughs> Like this isn't Anya saying like this fluffy new thing might be fun for our kids and teachers. It's like, it's actually, we should have been doing this. And um, so creating some urgency is our first step and like awareness. Um, But the other key factor is maybe, or maybe a barrier would be just, you know, implementation across, you know, in the environment consistently. Um you know, it's also like, as you guys know, our cases are so full as speech therapists. And it's like, I don't got a lot of extra time to be sitting in the classroom, making sure these are, you know, being executed. Mm-hmm. So time is a barrier. <laughs> um, when it comes to implementation, uh, um, and like you said, making sure that there's follow through and carry over into the entire environments, what, what do you think would need to happen in order for that to happen? I think it would be helpful I, to have like a point, some point people in the classroom, you know, it's like, so when we're doing the set framework, like, okay, so what's our action plan? Um, who's gonna do it? Who's gonna collect the data? And when are we gonna meet? And sort of having people like some accountability because I think when no one has, when there's no accountability, it's like easy for things to like, great, this is a great plan, but then, you know, false starts. <laughs> And then nothing gets, you know, um, executed or maybe it's like inconsistent execution. And it's like, this doesn't work. So there needs to be some training too, which is another, so it's like, I I don't know how, how you've done it in the power, like what you recommend, but I see like maybe training one, a teacher or a staff in the student, you know, and then sort of like stepping away and checking back in and seeing like, so how's it going, you know, at our clinical meetings or. Mm-hmm. In what would you what would you envision that training to look like? Because it'd probably be you who'd have to do the training. Yeah. So what would you think would need to happen for that training to be successful? For someone to actually be go to be able to say, "Oh yeah, Anya, I don't need you anymore. I've got it." Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I think videos are great. I mean, I would do it, you know, do in person, but then also make of create a video so that they could go back and watch it. And I think really short, brief, <laughs> like two or three minute videos is like all the cognitive, like, you know, mm-hmm. availability people have at this time. Um, but that could be in creating sort of like a library maybe like, and I talked to our IT guy about creating like a YouTube channel for our school where we could put professional development in there. So people can be like, Oh yeah, what was that? What was that strategy about, you know, you like AAC modeling. <laughs> oh, let's go to the AAC library in our, in our YouTube channel and kind of check it out. So I kind of saw that piece as helping for teaching and implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm open to hearing, 
ideas. (laughs) So there's a few things that I love about what you're talking about. And I just want to highlight them. One, you're thinking about long-term. What, what about when I'm not here? So let's just start there. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for thinking about like when we set something up, like it can't be contingent on us being there. Right. And I feel like so often, like, we're just like figuring out all these things, but if we're not thinking ahead to like, I might not always be here. I might not have this job at this place. Mm -hmm. I might do something different. Um, you know, creating systems in place where people understand a process. So I think that's one of the values of setting up a process within an organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love that you're talking about this. I also love that you're talking about how can I automate this? How can I duplicate myself so that I'm not constantly having to have, you know, one-on-one interactions. And when I am having one-on-one interactions, I want it to be really valuable. I want it to be strategic. What am I talking about during those one-on-one interactions? I'm Mm -hmm. talking about coaching people in real time instead of here's this foundational understanding of this tool or how to change this setting, like things like that, I feel like are automated. So I like when I'm thinking about like processes, processes within my own practice, I'm thinking like, what do I actually need to be there with? Like what's important to this like interaction and connection that I'm having with someone versus what's like a technical aspect to something that, you know, I don't want to waste my time talking about the technical details of a tool um, when I can just have a YouTube clip or some type of automated thing, like here, just watch this. This will, this will teach you how to set this system up or, you know, and, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. So I just love that you're thinking through that lens. Um, I also want to share a story actually that I've never shared. I've never shared Chris with you, um, but it (laughs) popped up in my brain. um, The first time I ever sat um, for a set framework meeting, I was a young clinician. I think I might've just been like, I might've even been a CFY. I don't even know. I was very young. And I remember like saying like, hearing all these emails, like Rachel, you have to be at this set framework meeting. And I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like, what is this? <laughs> what is this set framework meeting? And no one ever explained it to me. We just like dove in to like, okay, let's talk about the student. Like, let's talk about the environment. And I was like, what is this? So I share this to say, like, when you're, when you're, it sounds like you're working from the ground up, like people do not in your organization, do not have an understanding, um, even a little bit about like what even assistive technology is. So, um, just thinking about my experience in that meeting, I feel like teaching people what it is and why it's important. Because mm-hmm. like, if someone would have said like, hey, Rachel, this is like a framework that we're using to, to select a tool that can be really helpful for this student. Um, we're, we're doing this together because a team-based approach, you know, is is effective because we want everyone's input when we're deciding what a good tool, you know, or technology will be for the student. If someone sat me down and said that, I'd be like, oh, cool. Like, I'm happy to be a part of this. But like, as a young clinician who had no idea about any of this stuff, I was like, what is this? Like, like what's this acronym? <laughs> right. I was just like, and they were like asking me all these questions. I didn't know how to respond to it. I was like, ah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> and so anyway, I feel like sometimes we have all this information and you've been gathering a lot of information over, you know, the last year. Um, we forget what it's like to have no idea what any of this stuff is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that just thinking through that lens and trying to simplify it. Um, and then also like talking about the why, like, why is this important? Why are we sitting here doing this? Because we're taking people's time and time is valuable. So mm-hmm. if people don't understand the value, like they're not bought in right to even mm-hmm. sitting in the meeting. Cause they're like, what is this? This feels, it could potentially feel like a waste of time if people don't understand the purpose. Mm-hmm. How's that mm-hmm. sound? That sounds great. And I just heard this other tidbit about buy-in is show up in the classroom, like 
spend time in the classroom because people are more apt to listen and see you as a collaborative, you know, role <laughs> than like being like, try this and this is the set yeah. framework and let's, you know, but like, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. I think explaining what it is and why it's important is. Yeah. And, and people see you as a partner, right? Mm-hmm. It's not this like, mm-hmm. oh, like this person's coming in. Like I remember my set framework yeah. and it was this AAC specialist coming in and being like, okay, everybody, like, and it was like rapid fire questions. And I was like, ah, like it was really yeah. intense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that like when you show up in the classroom and you start showing that you're there to be helpful and that you're there mm-hmm. for a purpose. And um, I think that that can go a long way. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm not going to coach. I'm going to consult now. I'm going to tell you some specific <laughs> yes, things that, that'll save you some time based on okay. experience and, and, and my own mistakes, right? So first of all, when you are going into the classroom, something that I would uh, I would really highly encourage you to do is to set up a number of sessions, maybe six to eight sessions that have some sort of specific purpose in mind so that the first session might be kind of hearing about what the, the, the teacher is doing and, and learning about the teacher, what the goals are uh, in the classroom. The, the second might be like, let's talk about some specific skills that you want to learn. The third could be you doing it. Let me watch me as I, whatever the skill might be, Mm -hmm. wrestle with it and struggle with it and try and be on the same playing field. And then next time I'm going to watch you and we're going to, I'm going to pass the baton off and you're going to see this pivot to now Mm -hmm. you learning the skills, but each time you're coming with a specific purpose. Um, If you don't do that, what, and I've done it, I've done it where I've said, Hey, I'm going to show up on these days and we'll see what happens when I get there. It becomes sort of nebulous and, Mm -hmm. and um, not necessarily helpful. You know, it, Mm -hmm. and it might be helpful in like a microcosm, like, oh, in this day I helped or I helped this person even in this like the next two or three months. But like Rachel said, and the way you were thinking, it didn't have some it didn't have legs. It didn't have a long term um, system, systematic, systemic, systemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It didn't have a long term systemic effect. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'd like to consult with is having done that set framework for many years, so many people think of that conversation as picking a tool. Uh, you know, we're looking at the student and then we're looking at the environment and then we're looking at the tasks and we're gonna look at all of that to select a tool. But I'm here to tell you that that's only one part of it. Selecting a tool, um, that is a good use of that. But as you're having that set framework discussion, and I think this is where your head was going when you, you had mentioned it, Anya, earlier about looking at like the design of everything, the educational experience design is also, so you might say, okay, what, what kind of outcome do we want to have from this set framework? We want to pick a tool. But as we're having this discussion, what else needs to change in the environment? Like, let's not just do this to pick a tool. What are some things we might change in the environment to make the situation better, like behaviors, for instance? Um, and then what tasks are we asking the student to do? Well, maybe that's something that could be that could be changed. You know, what's the experience we want kids to have when, when they're in this environment? Um, that, can can we bend more than the necessarily asking the student to bend? And those sorts of questions come up through the set framework. It's designed that way, but mm-hmm. so often people just get focused on that end result of a tool as opposed to looking at uh, the, the the breadth of all of it. Mm-hmm. Like zooming out, not just the tree, but the forest. Yes, yes. I'm going to add to that 
this actually was from, remember the Carly Hines episode, Chris? It was a long time ago. It was like one of our, I feel like it was the first year of our podcast. Um, she's a teacher in the UK. And something that she said to me, like always stuck, which was like, if you're going to go into the classroom, don't just talk about one kid. And like, mm. you know, meaning like make the classroom work better for all the kids. And I think that's kind of to your point, Chris, which is like, yes, we're talking about a specific student and the environment and the task and all these things to find a tool. But like, as we're having those discussions, it's a great opportunity to talk about other strategies that could be utilized in the classroom to change the environment that could be you know, helpful for all the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as teachers, um, as, as, as SLPs were like used to doing like one-on-one therapy or small group, but teachers, like they have a whole classroom of kids that they are responsible for keeping safe, teaching, you know, they have a huge thing, responsibility on their plate. And so I think that, you know, being cognizant of doing things in a way that make it helpful for all of the kids, um, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just like, obviously we can laser focus on one student Mm -hmm. as a way to provide examples and all these things. But I think that, um, you know, helping teachers across the board with all of their students in the classroom is a really great way to get, to build rapport and say like, Hey, like, yes, I'm here for this student because he's on my caseload, but like, I'm here for all of your kids. And I want to make, you know, your classroom experience a better experience for everyone. Mm -hmm. I like that. And they'll probably get more buy-in from the teacher. 100%. Right? Yes. <laughs>